I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, and music. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear from thought leaders around the world in an enormous wave of goodness and progress happening right now. This podcast will give you hope for the future and help you take control of your life online and your perspective. The perspective it's giving us day by day by day. Bottom line, the people tackling some of the world's most important issues, uh, they see a different future than we do. And this podcast will help you understand what they see that we could see that would change our lives. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles. Since 2014, we've written thousands of articles and given people thousands of links to insight and innovation going uncelebrated. And along the way, I've been having these conversations with thought leaders and not that long ago, decided to start recording them and sharing them with the world. Because folks that I talk to on this podcast for the Ever Widening Circles articles, leave me soaring. They remind me that it is still an amazing world. So let's get to today's podcast. So my guest today is Vinny DeFuro. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I met Vinny because I was tracking down this concept of conscious capitalism that came my way over and over again over a period of a couple weeks. And I thought, well, that's such a curious combination of words. And Vinny popped right up in that tracking down of what conscious capitalism means. And he opened a whole new world for me in the way I think about economics. So Vinny is a visionary thinker. He's a writer, an entrepreneur, and he's a communications specialist that Well, he has a nonprofit that is specifically aimed at helping people master the powerful way we can use economics in our lives, research and resources for people. And that's all I'm going to say, because there's so much to say. And I think Vinny can finish finish my sentences much better. Vinny, welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Linda, thank you so much for having me. It was very serendipitous to come across each other and really grateful to be on this and to have discovered your podcast and your the work you're doing as well. Yeah, my role right now, I am the founder of the Institute for Economic Evolution, and we are a research and education think tank focused on evolving economics as a system that better evaluates and provides roadmaps for us as a society to move things forward and use the collective energies of everything going on right now in the world towards uh, the positive. And uh, so... This is the gist of it, right? Is that we have a choice right now. Vinny and I had a long conversation a few weeks ago, and that's what I came away thinking was that, gosh, we have so much more choice than we think. And I'd like to bring the topic today of economics down to the ordinary person level, because that's certainly where I'm at. Vinny has written a book, uh, Unlocking the Labor Cage, which I can highly recommend. There were so many sort of moving, sort of memorable things that I starred and annotated all about. One of them is economics is one of the humanities. We shouldn't forget that. So, Vinny, make economics part of our ordinary people humanity. Absolutely. 
Economics was, is the study, the original Greek term was household management. And this umbrella term now for the market and where we buy and sell goods and stuff. But in reality, economics is a, is a social psychology study and it, and it falls under the humanities or the arts and sciences. But most often these days, you find it in the tethered to the business school, a college or university, instead of being in the humanities programs. You know, we don't often talk about it that way. And so it really should be looked at as this kind of study of human culture and human nature and human ways of interacting with each other. And the market where we buy and sell goods is just one small aspect of an overall society. So I, I liken it to a doctor or a specialist. You would not want to go to a dentist or say a surgeon who didn't understand basic biology. And currently the problem with economics is economics is so focused on mathematical models of the market that they often forget that those markets are part of a culture and part of a society. And so returning that humanities portion that economics falls underneath is important. Yeah. So this is really, really important in our times because, you know, the pandemic has, it's like a deck of the deck of cards or a house of cards. It's all spilled all over the floor and we get to decide which cards we pick up and put back in our hand. I really love this about finding some opportunity and disaster. Give me some thoughts on what you're thinking about with relationship to new ways that we have available to, that we probably couldn't see two years ago. Absolutely, Linda. What is it? Crisis is the mother of invention or necessity, whatever, whatever the, the, the phrase is. But it, it's, we tend to need a crisis to come up with real solutions. And this has happened throughout history. The Romans began creating weights and measures to coin money because with a vast empire, the only way they could trade across the empire is if there was standards to their coins. Whereas prior to that, we didn't have standardization. You look at last century, the Great Depression. We wondered what happened after the stock market crashed. And Congress asked an economist named Simon Kuznets to figure it out. And he created a report called National Wealth. And that became the structure for gross domestic product, which basically is a measurement of all the stuff we produce and sell in the nation. And so that became the measure of, of what the nation was doing. We bought and sold stuff long before the depression and people traded things long before the Romans coined money, but we needed metrics for those things. And I think the pandemic has shown us that we have a crisis in social capital. In our social fabric is torn, torn, and we need to mend that. And we need to fix that. And so it's in this crisis now that we realize there's essential workers that we can't have a functioning society without. And so how do we take care of those things? How do we do better in those areas? Yeah, the elevation of various callings to essential status was surely a very interesting outcome of the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. So, Vinny, I think a lot of people would have heard those words, social capital, just popping up here and there. If you do, if you have a working life and, and it involves anything to do with the level of commerce or bigger picture kind of economics, you're going to have heard of social capital. And you may know that I'm always talking about something I'm calling the opening of the gratitude economy. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I coined that word, but I wrote an article about it about four years ago where I started looking around me and seeing that people were starting to do business consciously with people who made them feel grateful. 
whether it was a particular dentist in town or dry cleaner or a tennis shoe company, somebody who was making the world a better place. And then we didn't mind how much money they made, but we surely have stopped wanting people to trash our future while they're running their stock up on Wall Street. So talk to me about social capital so that we all have kind of a a better notion about how we fit in the picture and how the companies we're doing business with fit in that picture. So traditional economics kind of looks at social capital as this invisible, touchy-feely thing that's kind of hard to put into their models. However, it's the general store in any town USA that over the decades provided loans to, of goods to families that were having a hard time, or was the place that you gathered to learn what was going on in the community. That trust that, that drives a small community is, is what drives social capital. This idea of a gratitude economy was based on that. You had reciprocation. The author, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, wrote a book called The Thank You Economy. And in mm-hmm. it, you know, he said, he noted that, you know, our grandparents were better prepared for today's economy than some of us were. Because if you had a butcher in town that was ripping off customers, everybody knew about it. You couldn't rip people off. The challenge that we have today is with globalization and these large supply chains, we're making our purchase at the grocery store so far away from where that animal is being slaughtered that we don't know what the conditions are. But today with the internet and these movements like conscious capitalism, we're starting to go, oh, wait a second, we can hold companies accountable. We can hold the businesses in our community accountable now. And that's a change. And that means those companies have to compete for our patronage and they need to be grateful for us to come into their business because they exist to serve customers because without customers, a business doesn't have a purpose. And that's the cycle. That's the cycle. One supports the other and it's a sustainable model going forward. I've been referring to what we've been in for the last hundred years as the attention economy, as opposed to the gratitude economy. I mean, ever since the invention of the radio, it was how many people can we shout at, get their attention and then hold it by any means for as long as possible. And so if we understand that companies now have to invest some of their resources in creating social capital with us, whether that's the local dry cleaner or the the folks that we buy our eyeglasses from or what have you, how does that change the future for us all? Do you you see this as a a big wave that's coming that that people will be sort of, I don't want to say forced, but let's say compelled Yes, Linda. I, and, and, you know, I don't think it's even compelled as much as incentivized. Okay. The people, when you look at the last century and focus on GDP, it gave us a marker to shoot for. And, you know, especially post-World War II and the Cold War, we had a common enemy in the Soviet Union. And so a lot of things that weren't going well got kind of painted over because as long as our economy was growing, everything was good. And I think now if we can start measuring social capital, which we can do with better data and metrics and models and more thinkers contributing ideas, then it becomes a new metric in the toolbox for business to start looking after. You know, you look at this in the B Corp movement, you know, certified B Corps. They have to provide financial metrics and they have to remain profitable, but they have a dozen other metrics that they also have to perform well in to retain their certification. And they do that fine. And so I think it's it's not about pushing people towards it. It's about giving them tools and people want to do better. And once you start measuring things, you tend to improve them. 
That is such a primary business principle, isn't it? Yeah, I've heard that over and over again since I was 27 years old. If you can't measure it, you can't really improve it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And we, we, I mean, we know that from childhood. You know, what's the first thing we do? We start measuring how tall we are on a door on a door to go. Oh, I must be improving. So, you know. Uh huh. Absolutely. So, you had so many stories when you and I talked, and so many like little revelations for our ordinary daily lives. Talk to us about Wikipedia. It's a great example. Mm-hmm. Of a few things you like to educate people about. Absolutely. We look at all of the dot-com companies and the big tech right now is in the news all the time for privacy and, and monopolies and whatnot. But we don't often talk about Wikipedia, which up until recently was one of the top five websites. It's still in the top 10 websites in the world. I have kind of grown close to the story because you know, I, I live in, in the Tampa, St. Petersburg area of Florida and Wikipedia was founded in St. Petersburg. We barely talk about it here. It's a company that completely changed the way the encyclopedia industry functions. And I look at this often, especially in the entrepreneurship circles, somebody has a great idea. The first question that people ask is, how does the money or economics work of your idea? Will your idea function in the market? And that's the wrong question to ask an an entrepreneur or an innovator because Wikipedia said, it doesn't matter what the economy is currently doing. We're going to eliminate the encyclopedia market as it exists in 2000 and completely change the way encyclopedic information is delivered to the entire global population. So the economics didn't matter to Wikipedia. Wikipedia set the trend for what economics in that industry would become. And, right. and that's something I really think Wikipedia is the first and still really the only startup or entrepreneurial idea that, that, that has taken that kind of change on the world from a nonprofit aspect that shifted, that really eliminated an entire industry. And how are we to think of that? Was it, was it just time for an entire industry to go away? I mean, people are all over the place on their thoughts about Wikipedia. I, I was down on it, negative when it first started because my kids were at just the right age to be still having to look up source and really care about their sources and stuff. So they mm-hmm. got sucked into that. But then I learned about its ethos and the way it works. And you have some really important things to say about how it could predict the future of how we use the internet. Absolutely. You know, I, I look at it as, you know, it's it's matured. It's 20 years, it turned 20 years old in January this year. And it's matured a lot. And I think in the academic circles, people understand you can use it to find source material. You can't use it as a source. That's the big caveat. And it's great. You can start research there, especially if you don't have access to an expensive academic journal at the moment. It's a great place to figure out which journal articles you need. But I think more importantly, is it shows that we can have a collaborative, peer-reviewed, open-source way of providing information to people. And I think that's the key aspect to it. The other thing you look at is you look at what happened in the newspaper industry with Craigslist and everything. Like The money has gone away. And so I look at the encyclopedia industry as it was primed for that. I mean, you had to buy... Encyclopedias were expensive investments an industry that refused to really embrace technology because their business model was so dependent on selling a large number of books. And so it was ripe for an innovative idea to come around and say, hey, let's do this. And I think the internet was early enough too that the contributors to it, it grew at a good pace, whereas it would be harder later on to launch a Wikipedia 
because the internet was just so new at the time. And I think it was, it was a zeitgeist of things that came together that made it possible. But I think if we change the way economics negatively impacts the startup sector, I think new ideas that are ripe for this time can come out of that. And that is really right down to the level that I want us to talk about for a few minutes, because lots of the people listen to this podcast are in businesses they've started themselves, no matter how old they are, or they're in startups, or they're in the, you know, what is it, 10, 11% of our economy is working for nonprofits. I mean, we have to care about trust. If you are in this gratitude economy that I talk about that's coming or that is well underway, And the whole Wikipedia thing speaks to something that you mentioned in the book about consumer trust of user-generated content is going to be paramount paramount to advertising changing its ways too. this attention economy going and something else replacing it. Talk to us about trust. Yeah, I think right now we're at a low level of social trust because the advertising aspect of the attention economy has kind of lowest common denominator ends up winning out. And clickbait is far more shareable than something that you have to take the time to read. And so I think one of the things that that we have to deal with, if we're going to improve trust within our society and communities, is really to figure out how do we give people more time to dig deep to do self-improvement and to learn. And I think that that's that's really where we're at right now is is how do we provide, how do we free up time to do these things because we're all so pressed. So this is a huge, a huge important thing that that Vinny talks about and can help us all understand about our working lives. You know, the old work-life balance concept implies that you're either you're wrong if you're on the wrong side of some razor's edge, but you have a whole new way of looking at in our working lives and how much time we spend there that would free us up to to do just what you're talking about. Let's take a break to visit a way that ever-widening circles is becoming sustainable and how people can help keep this goodness going. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about exactly what you just mentioned, Benny. Do you thrive on learning from and collaborating with others for the good that's in the world? And becoming a better version of yourself both personally and professionally, every day, we have built something just for you. The Conspiracy of Goodness Network. You can be a part of the first networking platform that prioritizes personal and professional growth as we work together to make the world a better place. The Conspiracy of Goodness Network is a vetted platform of entrepreneurs, creatives, and professionals who are committed to making the future brighter for us all. People like you. On the network, you can ask questions and find help with projects, share trusted resources, request and attempt workshops, expand your network of thought leaders, and learn from the experience of others to catalyze your work, interests, and passion projects. This is a place where all of us who are doing something to improve the world, large and small, can flourish. The $35 a month membership fee includes attendance to exclusive monthly happiness hours where you can hear from amazing speakers and influencers. It includes participation in monthly community challenges that will improve your own life and the world around you. 
you'll have access to the network's mentor match service to grow exponentially in your insight and decision making. And you'll get automatic discounts on all of our courses and events. So join us, co-conspirators for goodness around the world, those who are doing anything they can to make the world a better place are coming together on this network to collaborate, and it is time we find each other. Go to conspiracyofgoodnessnetwork.com for a simple three-step questionnaire to apply to be a member today. Let's connect, collaborate, and change the future. Okay, we're back. So, <laughs> Vinny, one of the things that drew me to our conversation was that you have these some very new, fresh ideas about freeing up time. And I can so go with you on, on this notion. I know that sometimes it feels like I'm just running around with my hair on fire. My husband, my kids, everybody I know is remarking like you and I did when we first picked up this conversation together how busy they are. So talk to me about freeing up time and what that means in our working lives. Absolutely, Linda. I know I try to avoid using the busy response and, and, and to really go, you know, what are you spending your time on right now that's important to you? Because it's the one resource we all, all of us are limited on the number of time we have, no matter how many billions of dollars or no dollars you have. And I really, from, from an economic standpoint, it's like what worked 50 years ago didn't work 100 years ago. And what worked today is going to be different than worked yesterday. And this isn't that we don't provide value or that we don't work hard, but it's how we spend that time. And, and I look at the eight-hour workday was first really kind of came into being in the 1850s. The stonemasons of, of Melbourne, Australia, you know, went on strike in 1856 and said, we want an eight-hour workday. And the mantra was around that was eight hours of labor, eight hours of recreation, and eight hours of rest. And when you look at the factory towns in the Midwest and you look at the, you know, I'm in, in Tampa here, the, the cigar factories, the workers lived within walking distance of, of their factories. And if they worked an eight hour shift, they got to go home in the evening, have dinner with their family. It was a very patriarchal time. So the men usually went out and played dominoes or went, you know, and did their evening activities. The women took care of the kids, but you had eight hours of wake time in the morning and evening to do something for yourself. And then you had eight hours to sleep at night before you repeated the process. Well, in the nearly 200 years since then, we've compromised on everything except the work hours. And we've expanded the work hours for most of us to include longer hours in the office or at home office now with COVID, with or without commute times. And that's really a, a critical crisis because we need balance and not work-life balance. We need to know these are the hours that we're working and do we need to work that many hours? Can we have more people working fewer hours? What would a six-hour workday be? If we've become so productive, why haven't we shrunk that time to include more people in the, in the economy? And so that's really what, what I like to focus on is this idea that the workday is an evolving paradigm over years. So I think you and I, it was our conversation where we mentioned that book, Sapiens. And yes. there's a very important chapter in that book where he points out that it could be that before we figured out agriculture, we actually had time for art and love and discovery and all kinds of stuff that we thought agriculture was bringing us a better life but it actually just tied us to all kinds of ball and chains. 
Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me more about, yeah, I, I love this concept of a six hour work. You could have more people working each less hours. Productive world, right? Exactly. And that, you know, that's what does the future look like if we can split our rest and recreation time as we see fit? And so we work fewer hours. We have more time in our communities to contribute because we have a lot of social and environmental challenges to work on. And right now, most people are limited to sharing information on social media because they don't have the time to actually volunteer, to actually have conversations in their community and change minds and change hearts and, and learn the things they need to learn to, to really engage other people. And personally, I think the nonprofit sector is where some of this could start. Yeah. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that and give us your theories about how that might all look. So you mentioned this, the 11% of people work in the nonprofit sector. And this is a sector that's already mission-driven, not profit-driven. So it's all based on how much funds you raise and whether those funders, those philanthropists are okay with, with the way the operation of, of the nonprofit business is being run. I wrote an article recently relating this to Google. Google's had this thing called 20% time. And are you familiar with it? Yes, but go, okay. please explain so, it. So Google's 20% time is based on this idea that you know Google engineers and employees are allowed to spend 20% of their work week on anything they want to. And the wisdom in this is not that Googlers are going to spend time, waste that time doing things that are not smart or important. And out of 20% time, things like AdWords, things like Gmail, these are the inventions and products that came out of 20% time. So Google has more than earned back the time that was spent in this 20% time off. And I believe in the nonprofit sector, even if we didn't reduce work hours right now, if we just limited hours to 40 hours a week and allowed nonprofit workers to use 20% of their time on self-development or investing in other charitable or social sector endeavors, that we would begin to build this web. And we would start to show that when people are given the freedom and autonomy over their own time, that the whole system will benefit from that. It's kind of like that metric idea. This is a metric we could use. How much more are we doing in our communities? And how much more is that benefiting the programs of the nonprofit and organizations that are trying this? And so I think that's an area where this can be tried and not as a whole industry-wide thing. It's any individual nonprofit could try this. The same as how Silicon Valley startups have said, hey, we're not going to track vacation time anymore. And they've learned that it's in their best interest not to because most people don't take too much time off. And I think with this, most people would contribute even more back to their organizations. I have to reference podcast interview I did with Dr. Tamsin Woolley Barker. I'm not sure I shared that one with you, but I think you'd like it. She's the evolutionary biologist that counsels great big corporations about how people will self-organize. 85% of people will self-organize into amazing productive systems. But she also points out that there's always going to be 15% where she used freeloaders and parasites. <laughs> Yeah. And and she goes into quite a really lovely explanation of how we're more like ant societies, ants and bees, than we are other primate societies. We will self-organize into something productive because that's what humans do. 
And I think that's what you're referring to, that there is another way to do things going forward coming out of this pandemic that we can sort of reinvent what work means. Absolutely. And I did listen to Tam, uh, Dr. Tamsin's episode with you. Yeah. And it was one of the reasons we like we named our organization the Institute for Economic Evolution because economics is an evolutionary study of human society. And unfortunately, one, one of the roadblocks that, that economics has right now, post-World War II, economics tried to pass itself off as a hard science. That okay. this fictional character called Homo economicus is a male, rational consumer that operates at all times rationally with all information at their fingertips. And so as long as Homo economicus is a rational actor, then the market has to be a rational actor. And now this is complete bunk. There's no truth to it. We are not rational beings. And most of the time we lead with our hearts and our souls or our greed. And and so, yeah, or Or grief. All of these emotions impact what we do. And so I think looking at, at natural systems, we have to look at how do we find natural balance within ourselves of, of what drives us. And when we understand the complexity of what drives each individual humans as an organism, then we can start to understand how the market and how society is going to function. So no, her interview fascinated me. And, and I think economics from this day forward, the success to me with this is, is economics changes all the time. Because even today, people are like, economics 101, I took that 30 years ago in, in college or high school. And it's like, most of it's wrong now. <laughs> Keep up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, our critical thinking skills are really being challenged by these times, don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the time it takes to, d- to dig through everything and come up with what's your own understanding of what's real and, and or what's the depth of a conversation or a subject. And then combined with the fact that this attention-based economy is always pulling you towards the most salacious. It's always pulling you towards the least depth as opposed to the most depth. Absolutely. And there, I do a lot of speaking about that. And I think maybe you'd have some comment on this. I talked to people about the power of the pause. My, my second TEDx talk was called The Power of the Pause. And because we do have a choice on social media, like people are always lamenting how they feel so victimized by social media. And I, <laughs> I hate to remind us, but we're creating our own monster. Someone yeah. counting every single click we make, and then we get served more of what we gave our attention to. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah, the, the power of the pause was was a powerful TED talk. And that subject, you know, again, back to conscious capitalism is how I met uh, Dr. Rao and CPM. I, I took that course in 2016, Creativity and Personal Mastery. And a year prior to that is when I started journaling on a regular basis and meditating on a regular basis. And you know, when I describe what the benefit of meditation is to me, it is learning how to pause instead of reacting. And this changes everything. And it's why it's a practice because there's plenty of times you forget to pause. <laughs> it's so uh, true. This changes everything. And that's, that's I think, where, where that practice comes in and, and being able to pause and, and to not react. But it's so hard because the system is driven. You know, when you, you know, my background before I got into economics was, was programming and, and technology. And the amount of resources being used by the technology companies to create an environment that's a digital version of a casino 
the house is stacked against you. Even the most practiced meditator is going to be tempted by the notifications on Facebook or their cell phone. And it doesn't matter how much they put in, you know, screen time displays and whatnot. We will find a way around the distract or around the block to, to get our cheese. Oh, this is so true. It's really, it's about, okay, there's a game being played with our emotions on the internet every second of that we spend there. But really, the only way to outsmart that game is to figure out ways to outsmart yourself, outsmart yeah. your, your habits and your impulses. And yeah. I think, you know, you mentioned earlier the, the attention economy starting with radio. And it, you look at it, even a lot of people think the attention economy is this new thing. But why do grocery stores put candy at the checkout aisle at the eye level of children? Even the most organic granola feel-good grocery store still has candy at the checkout aisle. Right. Why? <laughs> why? Yeah. And this is where this is where the systems change has to happen. We can meditate our way, we can diet our way, we can, we can try to control our impulses. But at some point, the companies that we patron and that, that are in our communities have to start playing the same game and helping to shape better habits instead of harder habits. Add some produce at the checkout counter. I think these days, I think we're in such a state of flux that these days are ripe for experimentation, Vinny. This, if, if people are startup owners or people are long-term business owners like me, there isn't a better time to try some new things because I think people are more forgiving since the pandemic. We're more open to things not being what we expected or the status quo. And so I think that one of the things I, I can't let this interview end without doing is just going through. I mean, this is what you do is you provide people with your organization resources and new ways of thinking. I want to go through some of the great things that you and I stumbled upon that you you pointed to and, you, mm -hmm. you know, chit chat about whatever you'd like. Let's Let's take some of these things. Let's talk about lazy philanthropy for a second, because I think we all have a tendency to do that. I, I'm interviewing Dan Pelota in a few weeks, and Dan Pelota is the king of pointing out when people are just being lazy with their with their dollars. They're they're just saying, "Oh, this organization spends too much on their CEO's salary," and he points out if you pay somebody four hundred thousand dollars. Maybe it's because they can generate 40 million. Exactly. So there's a lot about lazy philanthropy that we can all learn from in these times and grow and change. Talk to us about that whole concept and corporate CSR and corporate capitalism and B Corps and all this. Yeah. This, so this is the gratitude economy. Yeah. So, so I'm a fan of Dan's work and very familiar with even his most recent stuff. And when I started this work that I'm doing now, you know, a decade ago, you know, conscious capitalism was brand new. The B Corp movement was brand new. And, and this is the idea that B Lab will, will certify a company like Patagonia or Ben and Jerry's, uh, you know, that when you buy from them, you know, they're not greenwashing. They, they're walking the walk. They're doing the things because a third party audit happened. You know, conscious capitalism looks at, are you serving all your stakeholders? Are your vendors, your partners? Are your customers advocates for your brand? Are your employees team members or are they resources to be used? And, and it's, they have to be team members. And so you're seeing this evolution in the, in the for-profit market side of things. But what's now having to play catch up, and again, I think the pandemic and I think the racial 
conversations that have happened on, on racism in the last year, I think have really put a spotlight on philanthropy. And you look at arguments that, that like Dan Pelota makes about we need to invest in people because the only thing that drives the mission of a nonprofit is the people that work in the nonprofit. They are not overhead. They are the drivers and we need to treat them that way. And then you look at Mackenzie Scott has made headlines. You know, she gave away four to $6 billion last year, very quickly in unrestricted grants to nonprofits around the country. I think she just did another one or $2 billion in the last month. Known she's, she's the former wife of Jeff Bezos but she's a writer and now philanthropist in her own right. She was there from early, early on in Amazon, but she is giving away money in a way that the philanthropic community is not used to, to the point that some people in the philanthropic sector will actually criticize what she's doing. And you know, look at somebody has to make change. The philanthropic sector has only existed a hundred years in the way it currently does. And they learned, you know, prior to John D Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, Philanthropy was very, very small and, and relatively focused on, on personal interests of whoever had the money. Um, it wasn't until Andrew Carnegie created this organization to fund libraries. He created 3,000 libraries because he realized access to books was the biggest thing that made change and it made him who he was able to become. Right. Ron, John D. Rockefeller, his biggest problem was giving away all the money he had made. And to this day, the structures they built are being used, but most organizations today spend the legal minimum each year in gifts instead of more. I think you're starting to see a difference. You've got some organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which of course is in a, in a big flux right now. But one key aspect is theirs is called a spend down foundation. So as it's currently set up, when both of them die, the organization has to spend all of its money within 20 years. So there won't be a Gates mm. Foundation 100 years after they die like the Rockefeller Foundation. And so this is a tweak. This is an evolution in the economics of philanthropy. And okay. a lot of philanthropists don't get that. So how does philanthropy tie back to the ordinary person's lives, us, and the economics that we're a cog in? So philanthropy and what is now being kind of dubbed as the social sector if you have the market sector is based on payment systems and profitability and financial capital, the philanthropic sector or social sector is a marketplace of social capital. And so how do we reframe that conversation these days? Making sure every child in a community is ready for kindergarten is not charitable. It's social capital infrastructure. It's a necessity because if you want to market 15 years later, when that kid becomes a young adult, or a teenager, you have to have invested in that child. That is huge. That's a huge con. So it's very often it's going to refer to doing things now for the greater good that's coming, our shared future. Yes. And I think we know it's coming. You talked earlier about we're more open to trial and error and trying new things. You know, I think a big challenge is the mindset that shaped the boomers and other generations, the generations of last century was the fact that to build a factory took years. To bring a new product to market took years, whereas it doesn't take that anymore. We can change things a dozen times in a dozen months and see which one did best. And that's something we really haven't embraced yet. We still, most businesses are run and most nonprofits and charities are run with the mindset that if we get it wrong, we can't do it over. 
And that's just not true. Yeah. I really think that will be one of the opportunities in disaster that we see here is that people are more tolerant of some experiments that we're doing in our business lives and working lives. So one of the things that we talked about the other day that I want to start giving people some of the great references to take this conversation further. Mm -hmm. We talked the other day when we were talking about a great book by Dan Rather, What Unites Us. And you told a great story from that book. Yeah, it was was a really good kind of history of of American history and the last century and, and how we had built community. And there was this kind of ethics and right way of doing things that that people elevated themselves above. And everybody knew that it was each generation knows they're making an investment in the next generation. And I think we've lost that a little bit. John Adams wrote to his wife and rather Dan Rather's book actually had this quote. This is where I found this was, you know, wrote, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, and music. And I love the the message in that quote, in that statement. The investment the founders were making was not that every generation needs to refight Britain. (laughs) That was not the point. The point was to make investments so that each generation could move higher and higher in purpose and fulfillment. That it was life, liberty, and the, the pursuit of fulfillment is the end goal, is the long-term goal here. And I think we have a lot of problems right now with you know one generation looking at the next saying, well, they're not paying their dues the same way. My grandfather worked in a steel mill. Never once did he, in my childhood or upbringing, say, you should pay your dues in a steel mill before you go to college. He paid those dues for me. He paid those dues for my mother and my uncles. And they pay different dues that I don't have to pay. And the next generation won't have to pay the same dues that I am. That is such an amazing... I remember you saying that when we first talked in it. It was like a punch in the gut. It's such a great realization. Thank you. That's what you're bringing to the, the forefront that's super fresh with this charitable work that you're doing. That's the essence of economics. Really? What Can you read that again, that, that quote? Yeah. I must study politics and war that my sons have the liberty to study mathematics and philosophy in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, and music. John Adams to Abigail Adams in 1780. So this is the essence of every generation leaving things a little bit better for the next. Yes. And not guilting that next generation for not having to pay the same dues. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. So with that in mind, refresh my memory about, we talked about Team Human podcasts in a book that you referred me to. Yeah, I love this movement that's forming. And the author is Douglas Rushkoff. He's been writing for at least 20 years, probably. And I first discovered him, there was a book called Present Shock that, that, that talked about the digital age and the impact that it's having on us. But the book Team Human looks at our species is not intended. And this goes back to the author of Sapiens writes a follow-up book that looks at like, will we become superhumans and only the richest will be able to afford the upgrade. People working on, are we going to upload our consciousness to the internet? No, I'm on Team Human. And Team Human is all of the human things that the digital ecosystem can't do. 
And that's to be creative. It, it's, it's the mistakes. It's the, the quirkiness of us that makes us human. And, and he's got a book and a podcast by the same name and just really lovely ideas about what's going on positive and, and looking at we are cogs in a system and we can change the system from within it and make it a better one. This is the essence of what we're trying to do with Ever Widening Circles. And we have a, a rebranding happening in December where we're going to create an ecosystem around that exact notion. Benny, we've created so many projects at Ever Widening Circles. There's an education site and the podcast and a social media network that we barely launched so far. This is what we have to come back to is each other. Yes. We, what we mean to each other's future. And that's what we're built to do. You know, we are each built to contribute something unique. And I really believe that when we expand our way of thinking about ourselves through chats like you and I just had, that spirals upward, that expands us all, that radiates outward. It does. I agree completely. I think we are on the cusp of a great change, of a new enlightenment of sorts. I'm an Aquarian by birth, and I believe the age of Aquarius is upon us. And, and just so many things are changing so rapidly. And those like yourself and others, and, and I appreciate being part of this, hopefully are helping to lead the way and give people some optimism. Well, certainly it goes back to something that you and I started talking about earlier was that right now the internet and its attention economy doesn't give us a loud enough voice to compete with the darkness. Yes. And so we've got to band together. We have to find each other. That's why we created the Conspiracy of Goodness Network, this social media network where people of kindred spirits can come together and because that's the only way that we're going to have goodness and progress rise to the top. Yeah, we have to find the uh, the team human slogan is find the others. Ah, you know, nice. It, it, oh, nice. Yeah. And I looked at that when I first published Corporate Empathy, the first book, and we founded the Conscious Capitalism Florida chapter. I spent a lot of time the first year trying to get people who didn't understand the concept to learn the ideas. That cost a lot of effort and energy. And, and what I really realized after that was I had to find the people that were already thinking that way. It's still the primary thing that I work on is just finding the other people that are thinking the same way and see things optimistically because it's only when we reach a critical mass that will the others start to follow along. Yeah, this is huge. And, and I couldn't agree more. That's that's why we started the Conspiracy of Gitches Network because we it's the hundredth monkey phenomenon. Do you remember that from the 80s, 90s? It sounds familiar, but I couldn't repeat it. Well, I would have to go back. I, I probably shouldn't even be telling the story, but I know there's there's a science to it because I'm not a spooky person at all. Mm -hmm. But the person that I admire the most is Jane Goodall. She was a researcher and a person who helped us understand the emotional lives of animals. She was the one who studied chimpanzees for years and years in the jungles of Gambia, And she also got us to release chimpanzees from four by four cages all over the world. It's just not done anymore. Yeah. We we're in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, caging chimpanzees as if they were mindless and soulless. Anyway, <laughs> I think that the way that we go forward is to, is to remind ourselves of the emotional lives of everyone that everyone's carrying a burden. Some people carry their burdens better than others, sometimes better now than tomorrow or the next day. And we go forward thinking of ourselves as part of the whole, which is why I wanted to talk about economics, because it is 
it is the whole mechanism that drives everything forward. And we have a choice. Yeah. We can do business as usual with people that we don't really trust and we wouldn't want to be in a foxhole with, or we can look for the helpers. We can look for the measured voices. And I think on social media, maybe we're not going to find them. <laughs> Because the algorithms are built to just serve up anybody who will say the craziest thing. Yeah. So talk to me uh, a few last references to give people the next place to go. Talk to me about Everybody Matters at this book, Everybody Matters and Bob Chapman's work. So there is uh, this gentleman. He's, yeah, I found him originally through a TED Talk, I think. But he has a large company that, that was, you know, produces industrial machines and stuff. But he had this epiphany where... Everybody that comes to work every day is somebody that he has responsibility for to send home in better condition than they arrived. And it really was this journey for him of, of finding purpose and treating everybody well and, and building a true family within their organizations. And they got put to the test in the financial crisis too, because while a lot of manufacturers were outsourcing to other countries or closing factories, they furloughed company-wide. So even divisions that were doing well took time off to help compensate for the business that wasn't doing well in other sides, aspects of the business. And uh, the book is really a phenomenal read. The foreword is by Simon Sinek, who most people know from the, his book, Start With Why, and, and a bunch of other books since then. But it's really a great read. Yeah. And we will put everything, all these resources. And of course, that's Vinny's life is advancing resources to people on this topic in economics and advancing economic research too. Tell me, let's finish up with, with whatever whatever I didn't ask you about. What do, what do we need to know? Absolutely. So, so we, we started this, when I first wrote my first book, the question I was asking was why when we, when we found a small business, it's warm and cuddly and Main Street, it does all these wonderful things. But then when it becomes a multinational corporation, it's sociopathic and rapacious. I'm like, what happened? You know, I, you know, I use Walmart as one of the examples of my book. What happened from when Sam Walton founded the first store to where they are today? And a lot of it comes down to, Simon Sinek makes a good point of this. In the 70s and 80s and 90s, we started using people to balance the books. So we shrunk employee benefits, employee time, and levels of management in order to make the numbers look better because people became an expendable part of the system. So from there, I realized the system could be changed by us and doing things. And I found conscious capitalism in the B Corp movement. And I love those movements. But what I noticed is while B Lab will certify one corporation and conscious capitalism works on building this kind of movement of conscious capitalism coaches and entrepreneurs and, and business leaders, the economic community basically look at both of those movements and all of these movements as eh, if it works out, that's great, but they don't spend a lot of academic time on them or research time on them. And so what we really look at ourselves at is we want to shape what macroeconomics looks like for the gratitude economy. What happens when economics isn't about just supply or demand, but it's about how the economy can function, how businesses can change things. And so we look at, you know, right now, economics is pretty much divided into supply side or demand side. Your supply side economists want to put more money into the owners of business. The demand side economists want to put more money into the customers and civilians, of, you know, citizens of the country. But none of those economic groups are working on how can businesses collaborate together as industries to change things? 
How can we address childhood education and communities working in tandem with the social sector? And so we really want to be a market and social sector think tank that provides resources and funds research in this direction. So... Can I ask you if you think, and if you don't think so, by all means, I'm looking at probably the looming most important problem that humans have, that our planet has, which is climate change, Mm -hmm. and saying, you know, we humans are a special, special species. We wait till our back is to the wall, but then we come up with the most remarkable leaps. Do you think when what you just said, as we we only are looking at the supply side or the demand side, do you think it will take something like climate change to make us look at all that's possible if we just pool our resources and, as you say, whole industries look at their ability to make a better future for us all? Yes. I think the climate crisis, I think climate justice and social justice kind of together are coming together. I think the pandemic has shown what it put a lot of equal footing across the globe. And I think really what happens from here is we've got to slow down and change things. Because even now I look at everything is reopened and so many people are back to the same system and same processes that they left a year and a half ago. Now, the benefit of that though, is there's a whole lot more people like you and I, and the people that listen to this show and, and that are like, wait a second, I don't want to do this we're not going to go back to the where we were. So I think if you look at what I think it was Simon Sinek, it's, it's the law of diffusion of innovation. And it's this yes. idea that you have your, your innovators, your early adopters, and then you have your early majority. I am hoping that we're at the early majority side. You know, when I published Corporate Empathy 10 years ago, it was an innovative idea and nobody knew what I was talking about. Conscious capitalism, the B Corp movement, definitely an early start. But I, or the early adopters, but I think we're at the point, I think the pandemic has put us in a place where more people are now aware that we can change the system, that they have the power to change the system from their positions of management and leadership in their organizations. And so I think now the next thing is crossing the chasm and, and I believe we'll make it because once we do that, yeah. and I think- change is sweeping and fast. Well, and I think as individuals, consumers, we are creating our own reality as well, because we got a choice. I was headed out the door one day recently to buy a sheet of plywood, and I live with the household of millennials and Gen Zers. And so I said, I'm about to buy the plywood. And they, everyone, three people shout at the same time, where are you going? Like, why would someone care about me where I was buying plywood? And they all knew that one big box store where I might go get plywood had this really despicable reputation as far as doing good for our shared future. And another one had a whole different reputation and and CEO that had a kind of a glowing promise to their generation. And they literally would not have let me bring a sheet of plywood in the house from the one and embraced what? (laughs) So this is the way, I mean, we do have these choices. And I'm so glad that you kind of raised our level up on this whole this whole economics topic, because it comes up constantly in the news and all around us. And it's foundationally what puts bread on our table. We're all, all a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate you sharing that story. And, and I think it's, it really is. It, it's, we're about to have a large wealth transfer. I know one of your guests, uh, Steve Shepard, had talked about generational change. And my father, I'm uniquely in a position with a much older father. I'm a Gen Xer and my father is a silent generation member. And that generation is moving into the end of their lives. And that wealth is going to end up in 
the family coffers of millennials and Gen Xers. And that's a big difference because even the business person that believes you have to maximize shareholder wealth, millennials are shareholders. A shareholder is just another version of customer. And that is going to impact the way companies um, act. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Vinny, for raising our level of knowledge about this topic and starting my wheels turning in lots of new directions, as I know you have with all these great resources you've shared with us. We also mentioned a book about from a Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone. And I know that's a concept that we'll want to talk about sometime. What you bring inherently to the situation that you're in is something I really like to leave people thinking about whether it's at a really macroeconomics level or in your day-to-day lives, what we bring to situations all around us all day long. And I'd like to encourage people to dive into your work, Vinny, because you're leaving us with so many new paths and rabbit holes to go down, which can improve our lives and help us thrive. So tell us exactly where people can connect with you best. Absolutely. Our institute is available via the web at evolveeconomics.org and on social media as Evolve Economics, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, we're on all of them. I am available at vinnytafur.com or at vinnytafur on social media. We actually on our institute website at evolveeconomics.org, we're going to be launching a free online course on understanding social capital, which should be available by the time this podcast is hitting. So um, definitely check us out on the web there. Yeah. This concept of social capital is going to be cute, huge to both our working lives and our personal lives as time goes by. Oh, I, b- I believe this century will become the social capital century. The last hundred years have been about financial capital. This century will be about environmental and social capital. Those are the ones that are inherently valuable. Financial capital just helps. It's the oil in the system. It helps lubricate things. It helps transactions happen. But the real value is in the environment and in the, the society itself. That's where the real value is. And we're all looking for the helpers in in our lives that can bring value to our future. So this is so lovely. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, for more information about Vinny's work, you can find everything in the show notes here. This interview will be an article at Ever Widening Circles. And uh, you can find that on a Wednesday, probably two or three weeks from now. As always, dive into Ever Widening Circles. There's so much there to be hopeful and inspired by. And we're not talking puppies in mailbox articles. We're writing articles that celebrate inside innovation that should be making the evening news and no one knows about them. So if you want to spring in your step, head over there to the Ever Widening Circles articles. I hope all these connections that Vinny and I just gave you to goodness and progress carry you through your week and that you start finding the joy and wonder that we've been talking about here all day and beyond that even more. Thank you. 